The epistle for this 18th Sunday after Pentecost is taken from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Brethren, I give thanks to my God always for you, for the grace that God has given you in Jesus Christ, that in all things you are made rich in him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that nothing is wanting to you in any grace, waiting for the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who also will confirm you until the end without crime in the day of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the ninth chapter of the gospel of St. Matthew. At that time, Jesus, entering into a boat, passed over the water and came into his own city. Behold, they brought to him one sick of the palsy lying in a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the man sick of the palsy, Be of good heart, son, thy sons are forgiven thee. And behold, some of the scribes said within themselves, He blasphemes. And Jesus, seeing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Is it easier to say, Thy sins are forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, Then he said to the man sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house. And he arose and went into his house. And the multitude, seeing it, feared and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear faithful, there's so many times in the Gospels, that our Lord says something extremely striking. But one of the most striking things of all, in my opinion, that, that he says is when he says that the end of the world will come uh, one day, and then when it comes, he's going to return in glory, and that he's going to judge, he's going to proceed to judge the entire human race. And for those who have been charitable to their neighbor, those who have fed their neighbor, clothed their neighbor, and so on, He will call them blessed and will invite them to possess the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, those who have been uncharitable to their neighbors, he will condemn them by saying that he, Christ, was thirsty and no one gave him to drink, that he was sick and no one took care of him, that he was in prison and no one visited him. And when he says that to them, he says they're going to say to him, "But, but Lord, I mean, when do we see you sick? When were you in prison? We didn't realize this. And he's going to reply, as long as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And this is a very, very extraordinary thing for him to say. Extremely unusual. In other words, what he's saying is, whenever anyone, anywhere, at any time, has committed an offense against someone else, they were also offending Christ. They were also offending him. So he's saying that if a man in India steals a chicken from his next-door neighbor, he's not just stealing it from his neighbor, he's also stealing it from Christ. Or if a woman in Brazil is unfaithful to her husband, she's not just committing adultery against her husband. She's also committing it against Christ. If a child in Watkins is disobedient to his parents, he's not just disobedient to his parents, he's also disobedient to Christ. 
If a woman in Watkins has road rage against someone who's cut her off on the road, she has road rage against Christ. If a man in Watkins tells a lie to his employer, he's telling a lie to Christ. Now, we're all familiar with this concept and generally the application that, that most people make when, when they read this in the Gospels is that we must see Christ in our neighbor. That whenever we're dealing with our neighbor, we must somehow think of us as dealing with Christ and treat them as we would treat Christ. And of course, this is a very, very important lesson to be taken from our Lord speaking in this way. But that's not what I want to talk about today. I, I want to talk about not so much as what this means for us as what it means for God. I don't want to speak so much about treating my brother as I would treat Christ, as why sinning against my brother is the same as sinning against Christ. And what brings this topic to my mind is the fact that our Lord today in the gospel forgives a crippled man's sins before he enables him to walk. And of course, the scribes are scandalized because they know that only God can forgive sins. They accuse our Lord of blasphemy, sort of taking the part of God, usurping the role of God, because our Lord is claiming this power, this divine power, to forgive sins. And this is not the only time that our Lord forgives the sins of, of another. You, you may recall that, that when he attended this banquet in the house of Simon the Pharisee, Mary Magdalene shows up. Um, she's a great sinner. She anoints our Lord's feet, and our Lord tells her, your sins are forgiven you. And there's a similar reaction by the people there, and they're like, who is this that can forgive sins? Because the fact is that sin, by definition, is an offense against God. And the only one that can exercise forgiveness towards another is the one who's offended. So if someone comes up to you and punches you in the face, and then I walk up and I say to the person who punched you, I say, I forgive you. You would be like, wait a second. I mean, I, I know, Father, you're a priest and all that, but, but I am the one who was punched in the face, not you. you. So it's really for me to decide whether I exercise forgiveness towards this person or not. It's not really your place. It's the place of the one offended to forgive or not to forgive. So what our Lord says and what he manifests in his public life is that it is his place to forgive. Whenever anyone is punched anywhere, it's his, he's claiming that's his role. Whenever wrong is done, our Lord is an interested party. He's involved in every offense against everyone. And since he's involved, it's his part to apply forgiveness or not apply forgiveness. Everyone who offends someone else must not only ask forgiveness of the one they have offended, but they must also ask forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may consider which, which is the more important, to ask forgiveness of God ask the forgiveness of our neighbor, obviously, if we must ask forgiveness of God, and of course we must ask forgiveness of both, but asking the forgiveness of God is even more important than asking forgiveness of our neighbor. So 
the, the only way that this can be true is if our Lord is actually offended whenever we offend someone else. It, it's only true if somehow we do injury to our Lord when we do injury to another. We Catholics know that this is even true when, when we do injury to ourselves, when there's no third party involved. When we do injury to ourselves and there's no one else involved, we're also doing injury to our Lord. If I abuse my own body, if I lose my mind through drunkenness or some drug-induced high, if I purposely injure myself, I must go to our Lord and ask forgiveness. I have to say to our Lord, I am sorry to you that I have offended myself. If I offend myself, I offend him. That's the implications of what he's saying. Our Lord is somehow involved, even if I am the only person involved in the commission of sin. How can this be? Well, I think it's really, really important today to explain how this can be, because the impression that people have today is that, in fact, God is never offended. It doesn't really matter what we do. No matter what we do, God is always happy. There is no way possible in the mind of people today, to offend God. He's unoffendable. And as a result, it's impossible for God to punish anyone or for anyone to go to hell. This is the impression that people have today. And, and we have to think about what, what sort of effect this has on our culture and our society when people do not have the impression that there is a God above us who is looking down upon us and who is offended when we do badly and he's pleased when we do rightly. If we just sort of remove God from the picture, what happens? Well, one thing that happens is that we lose all sense of morality, of what is right and what is wrong. If absolutely nothing that I do is offensive to God, then really I can do whatever I want. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what, God doesn't care. There is no right way or wrong way to behave as a human if there's no one above us who's setting the rules for human behavior, who's determining human morality, it just leaves things, morality, up to us. I can do whatever I want. Another thing that happens is that there's no real standard anymore for our relationships with our fellow human beings. If nothing I do is offensive to God, then how can another human being tell me that what I do is offensive to them? By what standard? If God himself has given me carte blanche to do whatever I want, how can a human come up to me and say, you can't do that? Or you can't say that? There's just really no basis for anybody saying to another person, this is offensive. And what often happens to today's world <clears throat> is that those who have power over others try to define for that other people what the proper behavior is. They use their power to force other people to behave in the way that they want. So whenever they want, do not want a person to do something, they just say, that's offensive. You can't say that. You can't do that. Why? Well, I mean, there's no, there's no basis in human nature. There's no basis in the will of God. The only basis is that I have the power to fire you. I have the power to cancel you. I have the power to dox you. I have the power to blackmail you effectively into doing what I want you to do. And I will use that in order to make you conform to the way I want you to behave. That, that's, 
ultimately the situation in which we find ourselves if there is no God above who sets the standard for human behavior, or if there is a God who doesn't really care why, how we behave. But of course, it's completely false that God is not offended by whatever we do. He is offended. He is an interested party. This is what our Lord is indicating when he says that whatever you do to the least of his brethren, you do to him. If you do something evil, you offend him. If you do something good, you please him. He's always involved in everything that we do. And you're probably seeing yourself, but Father, I'm, I mean, you've been going on and on and on about, about this, but when are we going to actually come to the point where we get beyond the fact that God is involved in everything and, and, and turn to why God is involved in it? That's what I really want to know. Why is it that our Lord can say that he's involved when any, anyone is punched throughout the world at any, any point in the history of time? Why is God involved? in absolutely everything. Well, the, the reason is, is that we come from God. We belong to God. Everything belongs to God because everything comes from God. God made that man in India. He made the man in India's next-door neighbor. He made the chicken that is stolen. He made human beings who have a right to private property. And so when the one man steals the other man's chicken, he's violating the rights of someone created by God. And he's disturbing the order for this world that was established by God. He's offending God. He's offending what God has established. He's offending one of God's creatures. And so he's offending God. So, And that's first and foremost. And that's why the man must not only return the chicken to his neighbor and apologize to his neighbor, he also asks, has to ask forgiveness of God. And in, the same is true if John Smith abuses his own human nature, if he takes drugs, if he kills his own brain cells, if he destroys his own reason for a time, if he debilitates his own human nature willfully, then he has to apologize to God. He, he not only has the need to, to go into rehabilitation and, and get off the drugs, he, he a, also has to get on his knees and beg forgiveness of God, go to confession, and ask pardon for his sins. And this is just simply the state of affairs when you have a Father in heaven, when you are a creature. By the fact that God loves you, that he's given you this very nice planet to be on, that he gives you to be you, to just exist, he makes you exist, you have a duty to love him. And just like any other lover, if you don't love him as you should, he's hurt. He's offended by that. You have to honor him. You have to pray to him. You have to live up to what he has made you to be. Otherwise, you are offending your creator and you have to patch things up. That's your duty. God is not one of those lousy parents who just gives stuff to his children and says, here, take this thing and have a good time. Bye-bye. You know, he is not like a father who gives a car to his teenage daughter and says, my daughter, you know, here's your car. Just do whatever you want with it. Enjoy the car. That would be very bad parenting. 
He's much more like a good father who gives his teenage daughter the car and he says, you have to use this vehicle responsibly. You must not drive this vehicle under the influence of alcohol. You must not drive this vehicle recklessly. I'm very concerned that you use this vehicle in the way that you're supposed to. Now that's, that's a father who actually loves his daughter. And God our Father is the very best of fathers and he's the same way to us when he gives us our human exemptions, when he gives us our human life. I'm, I'm giving you all these gifts. I want you to use them for the good in the best way possible. And when we do not do that, of course, we commit a sin. And he's the only one who can forgive us that sin because he's the one who's made us. He's the one who has given us all these things. Just think about what a blessed world this would be if everyone had this perspective, this idea that, that we all have the same Father who has made us, that, that he has designed our human nature in a certain way, that we have this duty to honor him by respecting one another and respecting the humanity that he's given us, that we have to seek his forgiveness when we do wrong to ourselves or to others, and that he's going to reward all the good that we do. Point of fact, there's no way to have peace in this world, any true peace in this world, without that perspective. It's absolutely impossible. And believe me, human beings have tried through the whole course of history. So, my dear faithful, in, the, in this month of the Holy Rosary, let us particularly ask Our Lady to teach us how to see reality with the eyes of faith. We live in this very materialistic world. We get sort of immersed in a secular society that does not see God anymore and does not have this conception that God is offended or pleased by the things that we do. And this was the, the characteristic, this key characteristic of Our Lady that she was able to do so well. One of her three primary virtues, according to St. Louis de Montfort, is her faith, her ability to see what is invisible, her perception of the will of God always came before anything that she perceived with her senses. We have to be sorry for sin because it offends God. We have to avoid sin because it offends God. Whenever we have done anything to the least of the human beings around us, we have done it to God himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.